1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10
0: for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater.
2: And my name is Daniel Janine. I'm producer at Eater. Amanda Clute, this week, we are talking about... A bunch of different things in the industry. We are giving an overview of what's going on right now in the delivery app wars. Uh, we're talking about some strange measures restaurants are taking to make social distancing a little more or less comfortable, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about closures that yep. are going on, also how some different states uh, are reopening. But uh, what do you want to What do you want to start with here?
0: I think we should start with restaurants reopening. Um, because it's starting to happen every week, we seem to get a few more. There's actually a post on Eater which is super helpful where we have every single state and what the guidelines yeah. are. But there's a lot, there's a lot going on, um, and places I wouldn't have thought about because we don't have, you know, reporters yeah. there. Like Indiana is open 50% capacity for dine-in mm-hmm. service um, starting on Monday. Yeah. And let's see, Alaska, 25% reservation only. Connecticut, only outdoor dining. It's a lot of 50% capacity, a lot of 25% capacity. I don't know if you saw that tweet um, earlier this week from someone who went to a bar in Houston, Texas. Uh, But it was a tweet of a very full bar with a lot of people not wearing masks. A lot of masks
2: around the necks.
0: Yeah, masks, just in case. Uh, There was a great tweet from someone at a bar in Wisconsin mm-hmm. because the court overruled the governor's stay-at-home order this week. So in Wisconsin, the governor uh, was ruled to have overstepped with his stay-at-home orders. And now people can go to bars and pretty much wherever they want, um, depending on what part of the state you're in.
2: It's so crazy. I mean, you you have to believe that three to five days from now, all of these states are just going to see a lot of cases.
0: I would assume so. Maybe in a couple of weeks, um, there's going to be some surges. Uh, it was interesting. I was talking to, you know, our coworker, Matt Buchanan, who just drove down to Georgia and he was saying the difference between New York and Georgia was just so wild in terms of people's behavior and how they're wearing masks. And I just went to New England for the weekend and everyone was very buttoned up in their mask Mm -hmm. regimen.
2: All different masks. What kind of masks are we talking?
0: You know, the same general variety of masks that you're seeing around here. Speaking of, though, Daniel, didn't you tell me a restaurant restaurant you like is now making their own mask? I think this is going to be the new restaurant merch. So
2: for two reasons. One, uh, some of the fancier restaurants are not interested in wearing ugly masks. You know, they don't want... uh Hospital-looking masks. Mm -hmm. They want. They don't want any part of you to think that you are still in the midst of a global pandemic.
0: Right. They want like a Tom Ford-designed mask.
2: You know, if the the mouth is being covered, in my opinion, like there isn't that much you can do. I actually personally. I disagree. I know we've talked about this a little bit. I personally (laughs) find the cute masks to to me are a little more uncomfortable because they're pretending. I find that they're pretending. Pretending what? Pretending they're they're. I don't want to say they're downplaying but they're like making I, I find them to be making light of a, of a realism and I don't <laughs> I actually don't think that's a problem. I think that is that's a personal preference.
0: Uh huh. Yeah.
2: Like we're wearing masks. We're wearing masks. You want to wear a, to prevent a somber, the of, a of somber mask
0: where I might want to wear a more cheerful, cheerful mask. My yeah, mask has a lot is. of flowers. I, just,
2: I want everyone to be miserable. You want people to be happy. That's exactly. What that's I'm
0: not what I'm saying. saying. I'm just saying we <laughs> we made our choices. <laughs> Mine's cute.
2: To me, there's something more dystopian about cute masks.
0: Well, I think it will feel less that way in a couple months. Sure. Because that's just going to be the new reality.
2: Yeah. No, I agree. Like,
0: I would have never thought that I'm going to need a collection of masks because my masks are starting to stretch out because I have like a. Oh, my God. I
2: thought you were going to say to match your outfits.
0: No, but I'm sure some people are doing that. Yeah. And maybe when you're going to a nice place, you're going to put on your nice mask because the waiter's going to have the nice mask. And Mom, you know. have you seen my nice mask? I have a date tonight. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, did you see the the trendy, uh, colorful masks with the little zipper hole in the, in the middle for a straw? Oh,
0: no, but you were asking about that the other week. Right.
2: Where does the straw go?
0: Yeah, but I mean...
2: Those are freaky looking. They look like some weird dungeon shit that I am super not into. When
0: we talked to... Andrew Janung in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. he was saying that you, when you do go out to eat, because restaurants are reopened there, you just take off the mask. It's fine. Right. You don't need masks with holes. And the holes seem to defeat the purpose.
2: I think, right. I think what we... what we
0: I guess there's a zipper, so...
2: <laughs> what we came to is that if if you're allowing people to eat in your restaurant, you're accepting that they're going to remove the mask. But I, I think getting back to it, uh, there are two mask things that are bubbling up. One mm-hmm. is that fancy restaurants are designing custom masks. To match their yeah uh th- to match their I never
0: thought of that but of course
2: to match their uniform uniform yeah uh, to match the coloring of their restaurant but also um restaurant masks are going to be I've heard a, a couple of people say that masks could be an exciting new line of merch for the restaurant especially restaurants yeah. that have booming merch businesses lots of cool t-shirts and stuff you know, everyone, this mask thing is a total new frontier and maybe, you know, if restaurants can make a little money designing their own masks and selling them. Uh, I'm all for it. Again, it's not for me. It's not. Oh, for so me.
0: you, you're all for it as a concept, but for, for you personally, you would not wear a Roberta's like, mask.
2: I can't stress this enough. A million percent. No.
0: Okay. So if I ever see you in a Winson mask, yeah. I can call you out.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you can have okay. a, you can have your choice of my limbs.
0: Only surgical masks for days. Not only
2: surgical, but also like I would get whatever, you know, whatever becomes the standard with the best uh filtration change system, like whatever they've oh, seen okay. shakes off the most germ or is the mm-hmm. is the least absorbent to outside germs. Like I am function, function, function. I wouldn't trade an ounce of function. Having said that, I'm cool. not gonna wear like big gas mask with the, you know, the bubbles on the side for filter. Like, I'm not going to do go that okay, far. So
0: function, but a little bit of fashion.
2: No, you don't. Don't twist. <laughs> don't twist. Don't twist me here. I'm just saying I'm not going cutesy. I see these masks. I see these people wearing bandanas and it's like you might as well be wearing a Kleenex, you know, it's.
0: Yeah, don't do the bandana. It's cute, I guess, but it's just not. New Balance dropped off a ton of masks. At my mom's work. She works at the health department in Boston yeah. and they look real dorky, but I think their function is much higher than your average mask.
2: Can I tell you who's making my dream mask maker? Who? Dyson. Hands down.
0: Oh, yeah. I trust Dyson to make a good mask.
2: I trust them to make a good anything. 000%. Anything. Yeah. I bet that mask would be $99.
0: Daniel, speaking of masks. Yeah. uh, A lot of guidelines have come out in the last week for people on the restaurant side as to how they can and should be opening. Again, from the federal level of the United States government, not a lot of great helpful stuff here because the CDC put together guidelines and the government rejected it. They (laughs) said they were too prescriptive, a little too harsh. Yeah. And it was too much. So all these other places have come in to fill in the gaps. Um, the James Beard foundation, uh, put together like a 45 page, uh, book Mm -hmm. that I think is probably going to be the standard bearer here. Uh, it covers everything from how restaurant employees should be behaving outside the home in terms of getting tested and keeping themselves clean versus how they should be keeping the kitchens clean and the dining rooms and, and all that stuff what kind of um, containers delivery food should be going into. It's all pretty straightforward stuff. It's just some of it, I wonder how realistic it is. Um, You know, the guidelines for your kitchen is that prep stations, you know, can only be manned by one person and they all need to be six feet apart and they all need to have easy access to a sink. And I just don't know, is that doable? Another interesting thing i saw in one of the guidelines maybe from black sheep restaurant group in in hong kong was um for larger staff split workers into teams that never overlap yeah and eliminate travel between multiple restaurant locations so like that seems like a good idea obviously like okay you have this the a team and the b team and they you know if they're going to get each other sick it's just your one team and your other team is safe but how realistic is that in a world of Restaurants and shifts and all that.
2: I, it's such an it's such an uphill battle, right? Because like restaurants, especially in cities, are known for having small kitchens, large dining rooms, huge output, close quarters, doing battle, you know, I mean, yeah, have quick access to a sink. It's it's so hard. I mean, how much how much how many restaurants are, are, are really behind the scenes? You're going to follow these things. I mean, it just, it depends what perception is. Well, how,
0: how can they?
2: Yeah, that's what I mean.
0: And especially, I mean, we were talking about this the other week. It's like open,
2: but stay apart.
0: Yeah. We were talking about this the other week in terms of the paycheck protection program loans. Like that's, if that's the only money you have access to, and you can't really use that money to remodel your entire restaurant space, Mm -hmm. uh, how is it, how is it going to help? Notably on that front, there's still over a hundred billion dollars left in that fund currently. And my guess is it's because people realize they can't use it.
2: I think one thing I didn't really fully understand about it is is it's not uh, I was kind of under the impression that if you used any of it, you started the program and then it became a loan if you didn't hire back the team. But I guess you can use a little bit and then that tiny bit of it can become forgivable if you do X number of steps.
0: Yeah, yeah, you don't have to use the full portion of what you get.
2: So I thought it was like an opt-in and you're then you're in, then you're in the game.
0: For Just to provide the context again, it's a loan program where you get two and a half times your monthly payroll, you have to spend 75% of it on employees' paychecks, and you have eight weeks to spend it. Mm-hmm. So with a lot of restaurants not able to fully reopen for a long time, it seems unrealistic. <laughs> uh, yeah. And speaking of that... A lot of restaurateurs are saying that, I mean, we knew this back when we talked to Tom Calicchio in, I don't know, early April, but mm-hmm. opening at anything less than 100% capacity is just not feasible yeah. at all. Yeah. And so all these rules are saying, okay, you can open back at 25% or you can open up at 50%, but you can't, you're not paying 25% of your rent. Yeah. Like the hard costs of restaurants are very hard. And, Many of them barely function when they're at allowed to operate at 100%.
2: Right. Dave Chang was talking about on his podcast. I don't remember if it was him saying it or or someone uh, or he was recounting the story of another chef. But he's like, we have to rethink a lot of our restaurants because a lot of the restaurants, it's not that they it's not that they can't work at 25 percent, 50 percent. 75%. Seventy-five percent. They don't work at like ninety-six percent. Like they work when right. we have a line out the door. So it's like this business doesn't work. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, should we uh, talk about Mamafuku quickly? Sure. Dave Chang has said uh, publicly now that they are. Closing two of their Mamafuku restaurants. They are closing Mamafuku CCDC, which is their only restaurant in Washington, and they are closing Mamafuku Nishi, which is the Chelsea restaurant that they have in New York. And they are moving. I think the most kind of emotional, the 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 one that hits the hardest is they are quote unquote moving Sambar, which uh, I think, depending on who you talk to, a lot of people would say is one of the most Influential, important restaurants in the kind of new American food scene that's in the East Village. You know, when you hear people talk about Dave Chang came along and, and offered fine dining without backs on chairs, that that's the restaurant that people are right. are talking about. Loud music. He's moving it to the South Street Seaport, but that restaurant is that area. Like it's it. Yeah. Even the way he talks about it, it doesn't seem like he's it doesn't seem like they're picking it up and dropping it somewhere else. It's gonna become another one of the momofuka restaurants and not the, in some ways the flagship like it was.
0: Yeah. I think we have talked about this before too, but it all comes down to a restaurateur's relationship with their landlord. Yeah. And so I think some people look at a big restaurant operator like Dave Chang, who's famous, who has restaurants in many, many cities, but if the financials aren't working out and the landlord isn't giving you a break, mm-hmm but one of your other landlords is it's like you have to focus on where you can win. Yeah. Um yeah. and so he of course he does have advantages that a small one-off operator doesn't have, but it's still going to depend on that relationship with the landlord.
2: Well, for sure. I mean, uh, he has a lot of advantages, but I think you could say it's an advantage or a disadvantage, right? Like his portfolio is diversified and he's got some better relationships with landlords, some who are investors in his restaurants. And then this one where, you know, in the East Village or in Chelsea where, you know, he was asking money for them to fix it up and it wasn't working. And he said, like, this is a, as he said, this is a profitable fucking restaurant. This is Mm -hmm. a really profitable fucking restaurant. And uh, that's my Dave Chang impression. And, uh, <laughs> Good. Good job. and we're still like the numbers just don't make sense going forward. And I think it's interesting. Like, I'm sure, you know, the the majority of the stories that we're hearing is landlords are not being flexible and landlords are making it very hard for restaurants to stay open or at least be optimistic. But, you know, there are the occasional landlords that are, are going to be open to the idea and, and, and open to making a deal. So I think if you have one restaurant and you have a lucky landlord situation, yeah. you, you could be in a much better position than someone who's got a huge restaurant group and happens to have all shitty landlord situations.
0: Well, and if you have a big restaurant group, it, it all comes down to your finances again. Like if you're super leveraged right. and you have loans out all over the place, yeah. then that is not a fun place to be. Whereas you're a small neighborhood spot, you don't have debt, you are paying your rent, you are eking by. In this moment, you, you know, like uh, the coffee shop guy who closed down by me. Yeah. he's like, I don't have debt. I'm good. I'm just gonna pay my last month's rent and get out of this. Yeah, and then I'm fine. And he doesn't have all these loans against his name and against his, you know, personal wealth.
2: It's funny. I mean, you hearing the term "sunsetting," it's kind of like a positive way of saying closing something. But I feel like in a, in a sense, it always actually irritated me because like you'd hear people say like, "Oh, we're sunsetting that thing," and it's like closing. I hate
0: that. Yeah.
2: But I mean, you know what? That coffee shop is being sunsetted in a sense, you know, it's, it's having an elegant taper, taper (laughs) off and that's fine. And I think that's nice.
0: I don't know if he would call it elegant. I think he's just happy to get out with his shirt.
2: Well, good for, I mean, not good for him, but uh major bummer.
0: We're going to see a lot more. It's going to it's going to keep happening, especially as June 1 approaches and rent is due.
2: The more people that realize there's not going to be any kind of grand opening ribbon cutting ceremony. Another thing yeah. they were talking about on the podcast is the way they're looking at it is all these restaurants are opening for the first time because they haven't been open. They're considering mm-hmm. them restaurant openings, not reopenings. And right. it's it's I mean it's it's uh it's semantics, but it's interesting thinking about The amount that's going to go into prepping those to reopen is almost for them, like the amount of work they would spend opening a new place. And that's going to be every single restaurant that is entirely closed down right now. You know, if you want to get excited, ask your local restaurants if they own their land. And if they do have a
0: party. (laughs) All right. So Grubhub, the delivery service is in the news once again this week. So we wanted to bring on uh, the news editor of our San Francisco site, Eve Beatty, to talk about it. Hey, Eve. Hey there. Hey there. So I want to talk about a bunch of things around Grubhub, but let's just start with the big news. Uh, do you want to talk about the potential Uber acquisition?
1: Well, so according to the Wall Street Journal, Uber and specifically their Eats unit and Grubhub have been in conversations regarding Uber potentially buying Grubhub since about mid-February. This follows, um, once again, sort of uh anonymous reports that uh, since the beginning of the year, Grubhub's been trying to position itself for a sale, which is something that makes sense because even though about a year ago, Grubhub had a value of about $13 billion, that's shrunk to around $5 billion as of the beginning of 2020. That was before the pandemic. And even after their earnings report, uh, you know, like last week, it doesn't seem to have gotten much better. So
0: why does the consolidation um seem like a good idea for those companies.
1: Well, it seems like a great idea for those companies because Uber Eats right now has sort of been in and also ran. uh, It's them, it's DoorDash, and then sort of as a distant third anymore, it's Postmates. Um, Grubhub has been sort of market dominant for a long time, but uh, Uber Eats has been catching up to them. If the two consolidated, they'd have about 55% of the market analysts say, which means that they'd be the boss. And as those are the only two companies in the delivery app space that are public companies, um, shareholders are going to dig that as well. Do you think
0: there's going to be any regulatory issues there? Well,
1: there's vaguely. um, Sandra Klobuchar said that she was troubled by, you know, talks of the merger, which, doesn't necessarily mean anything. And obviously everybody's got way bigger fish to fry right now. I think that sort of the question is what's in the greatest economic good? Um, Uber's continued success, which might be guaranteed by Building up its Eats unit Um, might be good for the world. It might be bad for the world. It depends on how you feel about Uber and everything else. Uber had to lay off thousands and thousands and thousands of people just last week. Those people aren't people who worked in the Eats unit, those are people who worked with Rides. Rides is doing really poorly and it's expected to continue to do poorly as we all stay at home.
0: So Uber is losing all this money. Do they seem like they're in an okay position to be acquiring
1: another company right now? Oh, God, who knows? How has Uber been in an okay position to do? (laughs) Anything all this time. It all depends on the people who fund it. Um, You know, I'm here in San Francisco, as you know, and uh, you you know, so I have sort of this tunnel vision when it comes to Uber and when it comes to VC. And it seems from where I'm sitting right now that VCs are willing to keep on dumping money into Uber as long as it takes. Then again, that's the sort of the same attitude that we all had in, um, you know, 2000 and 2001, we all thought that VCs would keep dumping money into losers forever. And that's how we ended up with everybody losing their shirts on pets.com and web So I don't know.
0: (laughs) If they don't go ahead with this, does it spell trouble for Uber Eats? I know that they had tried to acquire Deliveroo before, and they have started pulling out of some international markets, ones that where they're not the number one or number two. Um, what does it look like if that this doesn't happen? I
1: think it I think it spells trouble for Grubhub more than it does for Uber Eats because Uber at least has all these other business business models you know and revenue streams that they can call on you know they also have a trucking unit and they have this and that and the other you know grubhub has been sort of steadily losing ground since Hmm. it went public and uber has you know been gaining ground in the sense that it seems to keep expanding into even though you're right you know it has like sort of dialed back on EATS in some markets. EATS overall did really, really well this last quarter. And it's something where if they just continued to refocus their investments on building up EATS and preparing for rides to eventually Get better, um, you know. It might be able to make its way through this, but then again, maybe not. All it takes is DoorDash making a savvy acquisition. If DoorDash could come up with enough money to buy GrubHub and, uh, you know, offer GrubHub just a little bit more than Uber, um, Uber might really be in trouble. But who knows what DoorDash has in the bank right now?
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm, interesting. What's the public perception of these different delivery services right now? Have they, you know, when this all started, they were the big villains. They'd promised a lot of things to restaurants, and then. You know, you read the fine print and they're taking money from them in the future. Have any of them uh, made any moves to appear more restaurant friendly or have any of them approved their image at all?
1: I think DoorDash has probably made the biggest gesture toward improving their image with restaurants by saying, by proactively saying that um, during the pandemic that they would be having their, uh, some of the fees that they charge restaurants. Um. You know, that's something that they said even prior to cities like San Francisco, like Seattle, like D.C., like New York, like Chicago, announcing that they wanted to cap delivery apps either during the pandemic or, you know, in the case of Chicago, perhaps forever.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. I want to talk more about those caps because San Francisco was the first city to talk about them and then enact them. And now we've seen kind of a domino effect elsewhere. Uh, what was Grubhub's reaction specifically to those caps
1: well it's interesting since I reported on that story um, it was sort of fun to see how the various sort of flax the you know the people who talked to reporters, how they played it, and with Doordash it was you know it was very friendly and it was oh uh, well, you know we're just trying to do our best and the same with postmates and with Uber Eats to a certain extent mm-hmm. and then um Grubhub, who to be fair is the only um delivery app that isn't based in San Francisco. So maybe there's like, you know, some hometown issue as well. Um, I ended up getting shunted to somebody, a spokesperson for a very powerful sort of crisis communications and lobbying firm who, you know, texted Hmm. and wanted to talk and everything and was very aggressive, not toward me, perfectly friendly person, but like, you know, this is means that orders are going to cost so much more. And, um, You know, it's just, it's going to close, it's going to kill restaurants. They're killing restaurants by doing this. And I think that same day that delivery caps uh, came up in San Francisco is the day that Grubhub sent this sort of weird email to all their users in San Francisco saying, your orders are now going to cost five to $10 more. Now here's the thing, that hasn't happened. In fact, I've been talking to people lately who say that they're getting charged higher delivery fees. This is as customers. By the other guys, the other guys do seem to have started passing the um you know the money that they aren't making on commissions to customers so far, Grubhub doesn't seem to have done that based on the anecdotal evidence that I have. so Grubhub's threats seemed emptier than the folks who didn't make threats in the first place. I also
0: found it interesting that they talked about how this was going to hurt seniors and vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. and then, in comments to you, they also talked about how it would hurt. Delivery workers, as if cutting the commission from the restaurant would then decrease demand.
1: Yeah, I thought, well, and there was a, you know, it was just sort of a, it's going to hurt immigrants. It's going to hurt these mom and pops. And, you know, you immediately sort of, you know, they're painting this picture of, you know, the immigrants that have built up their restaurant and finally made a go of it. And, uh, you know, the pandemics hurt them and now they can't even deliver food. They painted a picture of all of this. And so far I haven't seen evidence of it, but also to be fair to Grubhub, they are not the dominant player in San Francisco. Grubhub is a much bigger deal. I think like, where you live. They also own Mm -hmm. Seamless, so it's a bigger deal out east. Here, Grubhub um, doesn't have as much of a market share as DoorDash, which owns Caviar, and even Uber Eats does. I do know from restaurants, uh, you know, many restaurant owners that I've talked to, they've also been less interested in working with Grubhub than they have with other delivery app companies because, as you know, the commissions that uh, restaurants pay are individually negotiated. And um, a comment I've gotten again and again is that salespeople for Grubhub are, quote unquote, as aggressive as people from Yelp. Um, Mm. And Mm. I haven't gotten that same sort of negative feedback about the other delivery apps. I mean, to be clear, all these delivery apps are charging massive commission fees, but I do think that it helps you make a decision when the salesperson you're dealing with is warm and fuzzy as opposed to, you know, super salesy and a little bit Huckstery.
0: Yeah. yeah. I had a restaurateur reach out recently because he has not been able to get in touch with his Grubhub salesperson, but then just got an email from them asking if he wanted to host a ghost kitchen of a celebrity. And they're trying to start this new model wow. where celebrities create these kitchen concepts and you host them as the with the, your restaurant space. And it's just like, them trying to do anything they can to keep this business going.
1: I got excited when you started talking because I thought you meant that there'd be a celebrity ghost, <laughs> like Elvis or Marilyn Monroe or something, and I was like, "Well, this is actually kind of a good marketing idea, especially you know once we move into October." <laughs> Love that. So
2: what? Are, yeah, what are you hearing about uh, ghost kitchens? I mean, you live in in you know in the home of. Travis Kalanick and his major operation.
1: Oh yeah. Travis is here. He's my roommate. We've been sheltering <laughs> yeah. in place together. It's been awesome. What's um, he like? <laughs> oh, well, you know, here's the big thing. He's gotten super into the good fight. And I think he has a huge, huge <laughs> crush on Christine Bransky. This is all why do not sue us. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, ghost kitchens are an interesting proposition in San Francisco. Some restaurants are trying to move fully into ghost kitchens. Like a great example is Dosa, which is a high-end Indian restaurant in um, San Francisco that has sort of cut down to one brick-and-mortar location. It's a beautiful luxury location, but they've also started moving into all this ghost kitchen stuff where they're sort of trading on the brand, like, oh, you're getting this Dosa brand stuff. Now, the question I have for it is, if you're delivering to people who don't know that dosa is a brand which they do know when you have a brick and mortar um, eventually are people going to be like, well why am I paying X amount for this Indian food when I can get this other brand of Indian food for a fraction of it The same conversation that we've had again and again about yeah. you know foods from countries that are perceived to have you know less expensive food and I think that that's something that a lot of these places that are expected that have expected to sort of build a model on, you know, expensive food are going to run into if they think that they can all just sort of convert to ghost kitchens.
2: I mean, I've heard it a couple of times. Restaurants with strong, you know, popular names saying it would be really cool right now if we could operate a ghost kitchen or a remote kitchen somewhere else in the city uh, so we could sell to an entirely different area. And because the brick and mortar is not the useful thing right now it doesn't feel like as much of a cash play as it would in, in normal times, you know?
1: Well, this, so this is wild. I just saw this yesterday just because of my many weird random Google alerts. There was this Asian street food. That's their term, not mine. Um, restaurant called beetle nut that had this huge following It's in the Marina district Mm -hmm. of San Francisco, which is a nice sort of upscale. There's a soul. That's where our soul cycle is. Um, if that helps get you a picture of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. so this place doesn't closed- help me.
2: I don't know what you're talking about.
1: No idea. Dan has no idea. He doesn't know what Soul Cycle is. He only just does like a yoga DVD from 2001. Um, <laughs> so it closed in 2015, and there's sort of a segment of the population that still mopes around. Oh, Beetle Net was the best. Beetle Net was the greatest. So the other day, I'm reading this newspaper from Boise, I know, and they are. <laughs> It's, there, it's heralding the return of Beetle Nut. Beetle Nut, this amazing San Francisco restaurant, it's, their food's now going to be available for delivery in Boise, Idaho. There's this Ghost Kitchen delivery startup in Idaho that got some recognizable quote unquote brands, including Beetle Nut and a couple of other restaurants that, um, you know, in other places. And now the delivery app is promising that you'll be able to get this fancy San Francisco food in Boise.
2: But I, but I think, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, depending on how you look at it, a scary or exciting future, right? Like, I, I don't know. Let's, you know, some, Bennu is obviously a fantastic San Francisco, fancy Korean, Michelin starred restaurant. But, like in the future, there's nothing, we're realizing that the barrier to a restaurant like that, that has a huge following, opening a ghost kitchen in New York. And calling it Bennu New York, and it's just for delivery. Like it's not that hard to do, and it doesn't just have to be the recipes passed on. You know, Chef Corey Lee could come and open it himself, and it could be a legitimate Bennu operation. Uh, but but could it without be a the brick and mortar,
1: I mean, like from a financial perspective, though, that's where I just keep running into the wall because if the margins on quality food are as narrow yeah. as we know that they are, are people who are getting takeout? going to be ready to pay that kind of money when they could just get a pizza for 25 bucks. Yeah,
0: especially as you get to the higher end places like like Bennu,
1: like does that like, translate? Sure.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, agreed. I mean, right now it seems like there are situations which people are paying a lot for a high end meal like they may do when you can actually go to restaurants because they occasionally go eat high end meals. Obviously, the experience is part of it but i guess more so it's like benu could do uh, a rice bowl operation in new york and it could it could be hugely popular are hugely glommed over. And it the I'm I just think it's interesting that it doesn't seem like the barrier to entry for that kind of operation. And obviously he's not going to do that. I mean he may, but we haven't heard anything. I'm just using his name as an example.
1: Are you thinking of sort of like a Marc Jacobs business model where there's like the really great Mark Jacobs that you buy in the Mark Jacobs store and then there's the mark by, <laughs> mark by Mark by Mark by Mark by Mark <laughs> Jacobs that yeah, you get at old Navy yeah. or something? Yeah.
2: Well I think as long as you have one it seems like you have to have one swaggy brick-and-mortar location where you yep. still have your fancy world-class sommelier and then use that as the credibility um, horror crux, so to speak, and then uh, you can open ghost kitchens all over the planet that so it's rely like, on the name of the original
0: one. It's just like one step above like a grocery store line. Yeah. Like the same deal.
2: It's still a restaurant, though. It's still a sure, restaurant Sure, it's still with cooks chefs.
0: making the food. Yeah. You know, but it's like the next level of watering it down. So if grocery store is the bottom and Bennu brick and mortar is the top, this is like somewhere on that
1: spectrum. Maybe this is going to yeah. really create the divide between the people who eat for status in Instagram and the people who eat to eat you know it's like easy to be sort of a uh a label whore if you can show it off there's no reason i mean i haven't worn anything designer during the shelter and play. not that i'm a big designer <laughs> guy but you know what i mean i'm whatever there's no you don't have that as incentive to show off if you're not showing off to anyone
2: you're just wearing all your mark by mark
1: i oh believe me <laughs> i think i'm wearing some mark by mark leggings right now mark by mark by mark by mark by mark <laughs> yeah. yeah eve
0: while we have you here can i ask you about uh the guide that a bunch of restaurateurs put together to send to the city of San Francisco about what they need to reopen?
1: Um, So two architects who have created a lot of restaurants that San Franciscans have eaten and um, the entire sort of tartine uh, thing, a restaurant called Diaranga, which I first heard about on this podcast. Um, you know, all sorts of other places, the actual architecture, not the restaurant design itself, the architecture. These two guys sort of got together, pulled over 50 of sort of the most recognizable restaurant in the city talked to a lot of restaurant designers, the interior designers, talked to other retail brains and sort of came up with this set of recommendations for the city based on all that. But so it's a 40 page report where you look at it and you think like, oh my God, I don't want to read this. But it's actually a really super fun read because it's all these first person things with these chefs and these owners just like bitching and letting out this vitriol. So it's very interesting. But the point of all of it is that what they came up with were these sort of concrete recommendations for city officials. It breaks down city departments piece by piece and says, here's what you can do for X, Y, and Z. I'll give you an example. Talking about rent breaks, it's something we've all been talking about, right? Like, oh my God, you know, here's the problem. You can't pay the rent. The rent is still due. What do you do? So, um, you know, the suggestion is work with this, this, that the city assessor's office should cut property tax and let people who rent space to restaurants take this huge tax credit so they can cut the rent write off the amount that they don't cut as a tax credit with a you know payback from the city and that's the way you can save restaurants is a lot of this stuff possible given that so much of it involves financial outlay from the city i don't know because our budget is booked. can i swear on this thing Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, our budget is fucked. Our budget is just as bad as it is everywhere else, which is wild because we're used to having money because we're San Francisco. Um, Mm. So I don't know how possible a lot of this stuff is, but it apparently has generated a lot of discussion at City Hall. Besides
0: rent relief, what else are they asking for or recommending?
1: Um, You know, a lot of the sort of standard stuff that I feel like everybody's been asking about everywhere. Things like getting rid of uh, all the complicated permitting stuff. You know, San Francisco is just as bad, if not worse, than everywhere else when it comes to, like, random permits. Like, stupid little things like your awning. If you need to replace your awning, you have to get a permit that's, like, a grant. You have to get another permit. You have to get... A- official renderings done this is just like that little piece of fabric over your door you guys this is not anything complicated you know you have to get rendering that has to Mm -hmm. get approved by planning you have to pay another thing for that you have to pay another thing for that little things like that so getting rid of all of these little you say nickel and dime fees but it's not a thousand dollars it's a lot of money to everyone and um you know enabling places to go back to business as usual without having to get all these permits and stuff. And it actually could really help people do business.
0: And in terms of reopening, California is still kind of waiting for an official day or San Francisco is waiting for an official day
1: when we're talking about restaurant dining rooms. Mm -hmm. Well, so. It's actually it's on a county by county basis in, based on a couple of different metrics. So if you hit these metrics, then you apply to the state and they give you to go ahead. As of this morning, I believe that 17 different counties have been approved to reopen restaurant dining rooms if they follow these regulations that were laid out in this 12-page document that we got uh, yesterday. These are all counties that are very small, relatively rural, and um, have not had um, any deaths within the last two weeks. It'll be a long time. So what are the metrics? Sorry, go ahead, Dan.
2: What are the metrics?
1: Oh, so the metrics are things like, you can only have one infection per 10,000 people in the 10,000 residents in the last 14 days. No deaths um, in the last, this is no deaths for COVID-19, obviously, not just no deaths in general. In the last 14 days, you have to prove that you have a sufficient amount of PPE, protective equipment for essential workers um you have to prove that you're ready to enforce all of the multitude of of regulations that we have for all sorts of stuff you know so it's a lot of stuff like that and there's a huge amount of regional variance because california is so massive and that's why you know you'll see headlines like uh L.A. has extended their shelter in place likely until August. Meanwhile, you know, things are starting to reopen in the Bay Area. L.A.'s infection rate is just growing, and the Bay Area has remained relatively sort of static.
0: Eve, thank you so much for your time and your reporting.
1: Oh, of course. Thank you. Okay, Daniel, there
0: is a somewhat amusing story this week coming out of Virginia. So we have our Washington, D.C. editor, Gabe Hyatt, on to tell us about it. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Hey,
3: happy to be here.
0: So there is a Michelin-starred restaurant uh, just outside of D.C. in northern Virginia called the Inn at Little Washington. Can you tell us about what they are doing to make social distance dining less awkward?
2: Hey, Amanda, hold on. Three. Yeah. Three-mish, three-mish. Three Mish. Three
0: Mish. Three Michelin stars. Three Mish.
2: Not that we care about those, that kind of thing, but, you know, three Mish.
0: Highest rated restaurant in the area.
2: Yeah. The The 10th degree black belt of the food world.
0: Very. Fancy.
2: The Fancy elite of the restaurant. Elite. Yeah.
3: So I think that plays into it. The simplest way to say it is they're bringing in a bunch of mannequins.
2: <laughs> Wait, who's bringing <laughs> in a bunch of mannequins?
3: <laughs> the restaurant is partnering with a theater company to put a bunch of mannequins in the dining room and space them out between tables because um, once they are allowed to go through the various phases of reopening here, at some point they're only going to be allowed to have half capacity inside. So, rather than having people way spaced out and having them feel like, "Oh, this is kind of weird," they think that the answer will be <laughs> to dress up mannequins in a bunch of 1940s era costumes and have, you know, placeholders at tables.
2: Right, which is less weird. What is the restaurant called, <laughs> and uh, and and who who's behind it?
3: So it's called the in It Little Washington, and this idea of mannequins is very appropriate for its uh, chef and owner, founder, a man named Patrick O'Connell, who is a real character with a flair for the dramatic. Uh, On top of, like we said, three Michelin stars, the only restaurant in the DC area to have that, even though they're about a 90 minute drive outside of DC in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, He's also has a James Beard Lifetime Achievement Award. They're part of the Relay and Chateau, this French association that designates the fanciest of the fancy hotels that are normally in French castles. Um, And he's known for throwing these exorbitant parties and, you know, serving kind of a modernist meets classical hot American cuisine with pears made out of confections that aren't actually pears. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's got a great sense of humor. So this is really on brand for him as far as a, creative attention grabbing solution to, um, a problem that may or may not exist depending on how you feel about sitting in a half empty room and eating your dinner.
2: But is, so is this the first you've heard from them in this time that they're, uh, that they're using mannequins to ease the awkwardness of, of social distancing or like, have you heard anything about their reopening plans or how they're, I mean, holding up?
3: Yeah. So there's a few things that, I mean, uh, their model would not be conducive to any kind of takeout because it's a $248 tasting menu. Mm-hmm. But I know they were talking about because it's an inn and you know it, that includes the hotel rooms. Typically, it's the kind of thing where you would drive out from D.C., spend a bunch of money, buy some wine, and end up staying there for the night if you're planning to do any kind of drinking. So again, that doesn't really
2: translate. Or fly in from some other part of the world. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, I would put it in that category as a world destination. Um, but yeah, they at first they had talked about, um, they have various gardens, vegetable and flower gardens on the property. So they were inviting people to come out and take socially distanced tours to come view the property. And they're actually going to release, um, before they go through the whole rigmarole with the mannequins, they're going to start a um, picnic box program mm-hmm. where they, um, you know, they host people for outdoor seating. How Virginia works is um, the first phase of reopening is going to allow outdoor seating first. And that actually starts um, as of today. That starts tomorrow, Friday, May 15th. Hmm. Um, so they're, I believe, starting their program about a week after that. But yeah, they'll go with the picnics outdoor first. Um, As far as their financial health, I mean, they haven't had any money coming in, but they also kind of own half this town of Little Washington, Virginia. And Mm -hmm. I would imagine, based on the type of food they serve and their position and standing in that town, that they are poised to return to this iconic status and, and make it through. I would be surprised to hear that they were a casualty of this whole pandemic.
0: So they own their their building
3: I believe they own their building and like other properties all across town because it's really i mean the population of the town is something like one hundred and thirty five people like they mm-hmm. uh, Patrick moved there it's and set this all up like uh decades and decades ago, forty years ago, I think, or like forty two years ago um, so they they really built up this town, um, around that. And, you know, they just did a whole documentary on this on PBS too. Um, so it's pretty interesting, unique situation there.
2: Yeah. I guess you kind of answered, but like, what, what is Patrick like? And when he says something like they're going to space out the dining room with mannequins, I, I, I saw the photos of the mannequins themselves, but like, is he, is he kidding? Is this, is this like a publicity thing? Like, (laughs) How, how seriously are you taking this?
3: Patrick is a very confident guy and he also has super high standards. So like they're not going to do this unless they figure out that it works completely. And, um, it's been very divisive on social media. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I would say what I mean is I think of it like rolling out a really high concept dish. Like they're probably going to test this in however many iterations and unless it looks perfect, they'll scrap it, but right now the plan is to go ahead and put it in. And I think you've seen people are really drawn to this story. I think some people are gonna go just to take their pictures <laughs> with the mannequins.
0: <laughs> Why 1940s
3: attire?
2: Ooh, great question.
3: I couldn't tell you. I think I think you uh, <laughs> must be drawn to something about that. I, I was trying to define in my mind what nineteen forties attire even is. If it, you know, you see in the photos there's people wearing bowler hats. Um <laughs> you know, I think it's just kind of harkens back to this idea that they're trying to capture too of like a classic American time or a different era. These these buzzwords that we as eater editors uh we always roll our eyes at, but are, have some degree of truth to them as far as coming up with a transportive experience or or something just different than anywhere else. Cause like we're saying, where else have you Heard about not only mannequins but '40s zero attire.
0: The servers are supposed to be pouring them wine and asking them about their <laughs> evening.
3: Which is very Patrick, too. I, I mean, yeah. I think this is a super thoughtful guy, so any kind of small touches they can make, I mean, we'll see if that actually happens. I feel like I would be more weirded out by that part. <laughs> yes. Like, if they're Obviously. just sitting there and you're yeah. looking at it through your peripheral vision, maybe you could fall into some Odd sense of normalcy. Uh,
2: yeah, I guess you know what? One thing I didn't even think about is it could work, them being the first ones to announce something like silly like this, it could work just from a novelty standpoint. And like people are, pro- are probably interested in just seeing and being like, I'm interested in being in a room eating next to the mannequins. I would like to sit right next to one.
3: Yeah, I agree. I, for me, this is a place that it's like, it's very rarefied. And I don't mm-hmm. think they need to resort to some kind of stunt to bring their audience back. Their audience is built in. People plan these trips. This is like a 10 year anniversary place. You go, you know, you plan trips mm-hmm. to the end of Little Washington for years. So I don't think they need the stunt. I just think it's a brilliant piece of marketing that shows off maybe this guy has had too much time to not think about menus and this is what he's been thinking about he's
0: gone through all the options and this is the best one he could come up with
2: <laughs> yeah i i'm just i'm realizing how dumb i was when i first read this because i in my head thought that it was his best idea of how to make the situation least awkward but you're saying very <laughs> obviously it's just a he's he's having a laugh
3: Oh, he's absolutely having a laugh. He's got a great sense of humor. But, I mean, I feel like the thing with him is he's having a laugh, but, like, what do we always say about, like, the best jokes? There's a kernel of truth there. So Mm -hmm. I think he's having a laugh, but I think he is also trying to tap into some need for human connection or, you know, there's some serious level of it. Like, it's not just a prank that he's not actually going to do this. I think he's really going to do it and he's really going to make it work. Editing the story, I can't tell you how many times I came back to, like, shouts out to our uh, associate senior editor, Tierney Plum, who wrote up the thing. And I can't tell you how many times I asked her, we're sure they're really doing this? we asked multiple times and they kept saying, yes, yes, this is the plan.
0: I mean, maybe when you're eating one of these meals and you're seven courses in, you've had a lot of wine, maybe it starts to feel normal. I think that's right. Wild. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, This is a a bright spot in our day.
2: It is. It's such a bright spot. Oh, that makes me so happy. Amanda, we are at the tail end. uh, In fact, the end of our program this week. I wanted to say thank you to Eve Beatty, the news editor of Eater San Francisco, and Gabe Hyatt, the editor of Eater DC. Thank you to you for being here. um, Thank you to you, Daniel. Being so savvy, uh, you know, guiding us with your light. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay
2: that could have been real if you didn't laugh Relax. that could have been real sorry, if you didn't laugh. sorry 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 yeah. no it's fine now say something nice about me see if I take it <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you for what are those rice cakes yeah
2: they're rice cakes but I thought they were sweet but they're salty and I don't want them wow. that was the nice thing you were saying about me what are those rice cakes
0: <laughs> thank you Daniel for all that you do and we will be back next week with more